Well, John here, revelation of Jesus Christ. Powerful passage. As I was saying this, I was reminded of this uh, of the, the young seminary student, just graduated, gone to his first church, and he couldn't, couldn't wait to demonstrate all the knowledge that he had gained in seminary, all the linguistic studies, the deep theology and the philosophy. And so as he went to them, he got in that pulpit and he just gave them some Milky Way theology, tried to awe them of all the knowledge that he had accrued. One Sunday, he got it in the pulpit. He saw a little sticky note with the verse John 12, 21 on it. Went home, looked up the verse. It's the story of the Greeks who came to Philip, and they said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And so being a, a wise man, he took that as a loving reproof, and he went back in the pulpit next Sunday, and he just preached Jesus from his word, gave them the gospel. A few weeks later, another sticky note was on the pulpit, and it had John 20, 20 on it. He went home, and it says, and they saw Jesus, and they were glad. <laughs> Isn't that what we want every Sunday? We want to see Jesus. And my prayer this morning in John's revelation of his vision of the glorified Christ, my prayer today is that we would get a glimpse of Christ, the glorified Christ. And in light of who he is, in light of what we are, we would be humbled and broken, and then Christ would reach out with his loving hand of mercy and grace and build us back up into who he wants us to be. So let me pray for us, and we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, we pray by means of your word today and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would work in our hearts to open our minds and our eyes to the glory of Christ. Lord, I pray today you would expose sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would also experience your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Lord, we want to see Jesus. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me, verse 9. John chapter, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are, are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You remember John is writing to a group of churches that are experiencing severe persecution. And almost right out of the gate, he wants them to know as they're going through their persecution, as they're going through their suffering, he wants them to know that I am with you. You're not alone. I'm a fellow partaker. It's also a, a reminder to them that in the Christian life, persecution and trials are not the exception. They're normative. That the normative experience for believers as we seek to live out our faith is that we would experience persecution. In fact, Jesus said to us, in this world you will have tribulation. Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer tribulation. Listen to me, if you're not suffering some form, at least to some extent, some form of persecution in your life for your testimony in Jesus Christ, it's probably because you're either so isolated from any non-believers that you're essentially living in a monastery, or 
It could be that nobody even knows who you are. That you've gone incognito. And nobody in your workplace even knows that you, you follow Jesus. We need to be aware, just as these believers were constantly aware, that to follow Christ means we're going to have trouble in this world. But then John reminds them, not only am I a fellow partaker in tribulation, I'm a fellow partaker in the kingdom. That, that we, in this world, we have tribulation, but guess what? We take courage because Christ has overcome the world. And he's our king. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we've become a part of another kingdom. Amen? So while we face persecution, we know we have a great high priest. We've got a great king. And we're part of his kingdom, that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. So yeah, it's tough here. But we know we're part of an eternal, ultimate kingdom. And all these other kingdoms will fade away and be destroyed by the rock of Jesus Christ, as we learned in Daniel. But the kingdom of Christ will endure forever. We're a part of that kingdom. What a great encouragement to these believers. But then, then finally, he tells them, not only am I a partaker in the tribulation and a fellow partaker in, in the kingdom, but I'm also a fellow partaker in perseverance. John is reminding these believers who are probably wondering, as things are getting incredibly difficult for these early believers, John writes to remind them that regardless of what you face, God will supply you with the necessary perseverance and endurance to stand up underneath the trial and bring glory to Jesus Christ in faithfulness. How about that? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder. We face various levels of persecution But we know there could very quickly be coming a day when we face the types of persecution that most Christians have experienced throughout the history of Christianity all around the world. And the question that comes into my mind from time to time is, if I face that kind of persecution, will I be bold enough to stand firm? If my life is on the line, if I were to face jail for preaching Jesus, would I be bold enough? Would I have the courage? And what John says here is, don't worry about it. God will supply you the necessary strength and perseverance to endure whatever comes your way with faithfulness to the glory of Christ. So it doesn't matter if you're Daniel in the lion's den, guess what? The Lord's with you. You don't have anything to be afraid of. Or if you're Stephen and you're preaching Jesus and they're stoning you to death, remember Christ is with you. Remember Stephen, one of my favorite favorite passages of scripture where he is being stoned to death and you know what he saw he saw Jesus standing more often than not you see Christ what seated at the right hand of the throne of God because the work is finished but on that occasion guess what as one of the faithful died in faith Christ stood in honor of Stephen isn't that good and so John's writing saying hey it's tough I know But that's to be expected. Don't be surprised at the fiery deal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you. This is the normative experience I'm going through. Nobody gets a pass, even myself, John the Apostle. I had to go through it too. That's why I'm on this island called Patmos because I was preaching the word and I'm facing persecution. You're not alone. But remember, we're a part of the ultimate kingdom. We're a part of the kingdom of Christ. We bent our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ who alone is able to bestow forgiveness and salvation as a free gift of grace. And he is coming back and he will destroy all other kingdoms and we'll be a part of the only eternal kingdom. And no matter what we face, he'll give us the strength to endure it to the glory of Jesus Christ. What an encouragement. 
And then John, having encouraged them, he records his vision of Christ. So look with me at John's vision of Jesus in verse 10. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. There's a lot of discussion around these first two phrases. It says, in the spirit. And the phrase occurs four times in this book and it always designates a spirit of prophecy. That just as the Spirit came upon the Old Testament prophets to give them divine revelation, so also John was in the Spirit. This is another affirmation that what we have here is the divinely inspired Word of God. Meaning John didn't just conjure up these thoughts on his own. He was in the Spirit. The Spirit of God divinely inspired the words that are written here. It's just a good reminder as we read this. This is theonoustos, as the word of God said. It is God-breathed. This is divinely inspired, a vision that God gives to John. So he was in the spirit, and it says, on the Lord's day. Now, the difficulty with this phrase is, this is the only time it occurs in the New Testament. But almost certainly, most commentators believe that we're talking about, when we speak of the Lord's day, we're talking about Sunday, that John was in the Spirit on the first day of the week on Sunday. Throughout the New Testament, we see the early believers gathering on the first day of the week, gathering on Sunday. Now, as we hear that, that's not a big deal for us, but it's because it's kind of common thought for us that we gather for worship on Sunday. But this was a huge deal. This was a big deal to those early believers, especially those early Jewish believers, and especially the apostles who had been worshiping for thousands of years on which day? On Saturday. Saturday was their Sabbath. Saturday was their day of worship. And now suddenly, all of a sudden, they begin worshiping on Sunday. This was a radical change. The the closest comparison that I could come up to my mind is, is that it would be like us changing our celebration of July the 4th to some other day. Now, that, that, that would be crazy. What, what kind of dramatic event would have to occur to get us to change the day of our celebration of our independence to another day? So the question here, why would they change? What dramatic event occurred that would cause them to cease worshiping on Saturday and start worshiping on Sunday? They made the change because it was on Sunday, the first day of the week, that Christ was raised from the dead. It was on that day, on the first day of the week, on Sunday, that sin, Satan, and death was defeated in Christ's resurrection and the kingdom of God was established. And so here's John in the spirit on the Lord's day in exile on an island called Patmos. Do you not think he was feeling pretty lonely? I mean, we we got a little bit of a taste of this when we went through COVID and we could no longer gather for corporate worship here. I don't know about you, but I realized real quickly the necessity of gathering for corporate worship. Boy, we need to be, if there's something that we see here, it's that corporate worship is essential. (laughs) Essentially, John's going to church when nobody could go with him. To some shape or form, he's going to church because it was essential. He knew, even though he wasn't able to gather with the believers, he knew there's something special about this day, and I'm attended to be with God's people, and he's feeling something somewhat probably alone. But boy, on this day, as he gathered for worship, he was about to experience a worship service like never before because on this Lord's day, he got a vision of Christ. And as I said earlier, and you're gonna hear me say again, this is a reminder of our goal every time we gather for worship. Every time we gather, our goal is that we would see Jesus. 
that worship is not about you. Worship is not about me. It's not about what we get. It's not about a program. It's not about a song. And it's not about a preacher. It's about Jesus. And about giving to him the worship that his glory demands. So here is John on the Lord's day, probably feeling somewhat alone. And he gets a vision of Christ. Look in verse 11. He heard a voice like a trumpet, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. He's gonna get a vision of Christ. He's told to write it down, to record for the churches and for us this vision of the glorified Christ. Now, none of the gospel writers record for us the physical attributes of Jesus. Not one gospel writer tells you how tall Jesus was. It doesn't tell you the color of his hair or the color of his eyes. No gospel writers uh, give you uh, the physical attributes of Christ. The question is, why don't they? Why don't the gospel writers tell us about the physical attributes of Christ? I believe because the gospel writers knew if, this, if, if they told us that Jesus had blonde hair, we'd all dye our hair blonde. If it told us that he had a gap between his two front teeth, we'd all try to get a gap between our teeth. In other words, we'd focus on the wrong things, wouldn't we? The scripture doesn't give us his physical attributes, but what does scripture tell us about? It tells us about his nature. It tells us about his character. It tells us about his mind. Why? Because that's what we're intended to imitate. But right here in the first chapter of Revelation, we get the clearest description of Christ that you will find in the New Testament. Now make note, this is a vision of the glorified Christ. This is the glorified Christ. The last time that John saw Jesus was over 30 years ago. He saw, you remember, he saw the resurrected Christ. And he was able to touch Jesus. He was able to carry on a conversation with him. But on this occasion, when he enters into the presence of the glorified Christ, he doesn't walk up to Jesus and say, hey, buddy, what's going on? No, he walks in the presence of the glorified Christ and he falls down like a dead man. It's a reminder of the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember, Jesus says, you, you, and you, Peter, James, and John, you're coming with me. And they go up, and they go up on a mountain. And you remember, they see Jesus, and all of a sudden, they see Elijah and Moses. And you remember right there, the Lord knowing that the, the cross was coming and knowing the persecution that the early disciples were going to face. Do you remember God, for just a moment, he peels back the veil and they get to see the glorified Christ. You remember what they do? They heard the voice of Christ and they fell on their face like dead men. They saw the glorified Christ. John here sees the glorified. This is the Jesus that you will see when you die. The glorified Christ. Well, here he is. Look with me in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. The seven golden lampstands, we're told in verse 20, those are the churches, the seven churches. You and I, as the church, we are the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. We are the lampstands of God. God, in, in, a, in a dark world, we reflect the glory of Christ, and we point people to the truth of God's word. 
It's the essence of what Paul said in Philippians chapter two when he says, do nothing with grumbling or complaining so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of truth. You and I in this world are intended to be the light of Christ pointing people to the truth of Jesus Christ and his holy word. That's what we're intended to be. But the beauty of this is you see the seven churches, these lampstands, but you also see who is in the midst of them. Christ is in the middle. Christ is among them. And he's depicted as the great high priest, that long robe and that golden sash. That is the high priestly attire. So here is Christ The great high priest, he's right there with his church, right there with his people. That he is, this is astounding to me, that when we think about Christ, he is not distant, he is not aloof, he is not uninvolved in his church. No, quite the contrary, he is with us. And every time, listen to me, every time we gather for worship, there is nothing That is hidden from his sight. Do you know that? He's involved in his church. He's here with us. This is the beauty of Christianity. You know, oftentimes Christianity is described as um, those Christians, they just follow the teachings of Jesus. And it is true that we do follow the teachings of Jesus. But Christianity is so much more than just following the teachings of, of Jesus. To say that Christianity is just following the teachings of Jesus is like trying to explain astrophysics by saying twinkle, twinkle, little star. It in no way does it justice. Listen, in Christ Jesus, we are a bride to a bridegroom. We're a vine to a branch. We're a body part to a body. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ. Even as we saw in baptism, we're united with Christ in his his death and in his life. And he's not just with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's inside of us. You see, the beauty of this is we're just out here as a church. We're trying as best we can to shine the light of Christ in this corner of the world, in this little corner of 87th and Lackman and Lenexa, Kansas. And the beauty of this is Christ is with us. He's supporting us, encouraging us as we try to do his work. And then in verses 14 through 15, his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Do you know what this sounds like as you're reading this? If you read Daniel, you ought to see Daniel all over this. In fact, really the vision here is a combination of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10, which is why we had to study that before we get here. These phrases are picked up, and you see here he's depicted with his hair of white wool. Remember what we talked about? White hair in Scripture is always a picture of what? Wisdom. Amen? I see some of you out there. You are wise beyond belief. (laughs) But it's a reminder when it describes his hair like white wool, it is communicating to us he is all wise. He is all-knowing. You know, even as I was saying, you know what's interesting about this? In our world, in our world, we honor youth. Do you know what God honors? God honors age and wisdom. Isn't that beautiful? Here's Christ. He's depicted as all-wise, all-knowing, as totally 
pure, holy, completely set apart. And it says that his eyes were like a flame of fire, meaning he sees everything. Nothing is hidden from Christ. He sees right to the heart. I believe that as John looks into the eyes of Christ, he feels like Christ sees right through him. In fact, as I'm going to say, we'll get towards the end, but I I think as he sees Jesus, the first thing that he he thinks is he sees every sin I've ever committed. Just like Jesus, he saw right to the heart of Pilate. He saw right to the heart of Peter. He saw right to the heart of Judas. Everything was laid bare before him. You can fool a lot of people, but you can't fool Jesus. You may be able to put on a little facade and people think you're all great and everything's going good, but Jesus sees to the heart. He knows it going on right inside of you. Boy, can you imagine Jesus looking at you with eyes of a flame like a blaze? And then it says his feet like, like burnished bronze, meaning these feet are able to crush all his enemies. No one can stand against him. Nobody is able to conquer him. And his voice, like the sound of many waters, We've all seen, if you've been at a waterfall, you've seen years ago, I got to go to Victoria Falls in Africa, and you see the power of rushing water. And it says that his word is like the rushing of many waters. You know, the disciples, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, it was when Christ spoke. The glorified Christ spoke, and they fell. God's word is powerful. The Lord's word is powerful. We get a little glimpse of this in our life today. If you know the Lord, you've experienced this. You've been reading through God's word. And the Lord spoke to you. And you were so overwhelmed, you began to weep. There have been times when I have heard the Lord speak to the power of his word and it was so overwhelming, I couldn't get on the ground low enough. That's just a little taste. Can you imagine being in the presence of Christ and his word going forth in power? And then we move on. It says in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. He has seven stars in his hands. These stars in verse 20 are described as angels. Now it could be that God has appointed an angel over each of the churches and that, that could be the case. However, angel is often translated messenger, a divine messenger. In fact, Epaphroditus, Paul describes him as an angelos, an angel, a divine messenger. He was the pastor, the delegate appointed to the church at Philippi, and Paul refers to him in this way. So this word angel, or in the Greek, angelos, sometimes refers to a human whose job is an angelic job. And what do angels do? They don't tell you what they think. An angel doesn't tell you what he thinks. He doesn't give you his opinions. An angel tells you what God told him to say. I believe that these angels are divine messengers that God has appointed over the churches. See, the basis of New Testament truth is the apostles' teaching. 
But as the apostles were dying off, they appointed apostolic delegates over those churches. Just mentioned in Philippi, it was Epaphroditus. In Colossae, it was Epaphras. In Ephesus, it was Timothy. In Crete, it was Titus. And these men were to echo the apostolic truth of God's word. And that is specifically what these stars are. They are men who are angels, divine messengers of God in those churches. They are pastors and elders, and they're to be messengers of the apostolic truth of God's word. In other words, they are not philosophers, they are not politicians, they're not poets, they're not motivational speakers, and they're not entertainers. They simply communicate the truth of God's word. It's why you've heard me say this here. If you ever come to church here and somebody stands in this pulpit and does not preach from the truth of God's word, you leave. Just go. Because quite frankly, we have nothing else. Hopefully, hopefully you're not here to hear from me. I'm a knucklehead. I don't even know where Seattle's at. I am not a bastion of wisdom. All I do is point you to the truth of God's word. That's what we're called to do. That's what these divine messengers are. They're called stars because they're intended to simply shine the light of God's truth in a dark world. And it says he holds them in his hand. He holds them in his hand because a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. Now you, you talk about a vivid description here. In Hebrews, you know that phrase because in Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Do you understand that this is the Jesus that one day you will stand before? And his word, in fact, the context of Hebrews chapter four is about the final judgment do you realize one day you're going to stand before God and if you're here and you don't know Jesus and I know people, I go to them and you share the gospel and they've got all these little nifty excuses that they think are so clever and so sharp and so smart for why they will not believe in Jesus. Listen to me, one day the word of God is going to cut away at all those little nifty excuses and your heart will be exposed as a sinner. That's the picture here. I think the picture also for the pastors, for the messengers, for the elders, is that you too will be held accountable by God's word, that the word of God is a sword to your throat. It's intended to be graphic. You will be laid bare before God. And then it says his face like the sun. The sun is often a picture of God in the Old Testament. It's not God, but it's a picture of God. The sun gives us a picture of God. The sun gives light and life and warmth and, and, yet, and yet it's so glorious, so bright, you can't really look on it. You can't focus in on the sun. That's Jesus. He's the one who holds all things together. He gives light. He gives life. He gives warmth. And yet he's so glorious that no one can fully focus in on him. What a powerful picture here. John's reaction in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. As I said earlier, I think John at that moment is thinking about all of his sin, all the sinful thoughts that have gone through his mind, all the sinful words that have come out from his mouth. To me, it's, it, I couldn't help but think of, as soon as I read this, of Isaiah 6. You remember when Isaiah 
sees the Lord in his temple and sees his robe filling the temple and he's seated on his throne and it's filled with smoke and the foundation of the temple begins to shake and you remember, what does it say about Isaiah? He fell like a dead man and he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He says, I'm a goner because Isaiah believed as all the ancients did that if you saw God, you would die. Here is John in the presence of a holy God and he falls on his face. And yet what does Jesus do in verse 17? It says that he placed his right hand on me. So you think, as I'm studying this, I'm trying to picture this. John, he thinks he's about to die. And Jesus reaches out with his right hand. Now what is on Jesus' right hand? Scars, nail prints. Jesus, the glorified Jesus, is terrifying. He's terrifying to the angelic realm. Satan, in the presence of Christ, begs, begs for mercy. And yet those who truly know Jesus who are humbled in his presence and worship him, you know what he does? He reaches out with his hand of mercy and grace and he touches us. He loves us. He holds us. This is the part of the passage that was overwhelming to me. The one who crushes the nations, the one who's more glorious than we can possibly imagine reaches out with nail-pierced hands and says, it's okay. You don't have to be afraid. Why? What does he say here in verse 17? You don't have to be afraid. I'm the first and the last of the living. When I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. John, who thinks he's about to die, he's gonna be overwhelmed. He says, you don't have to be afraid. I'm the living one. You won't die because I died. Don't be afraid. I conquered death. I conquered hell. I came into the strong man's house and I bound him. I defeated sin, Satan, and death in my resurrection. And the nail print in Christ's hands is your receipt. The nail prints in his hand is your proof of purchase. That you have been redeemed. That all that the law demands has been Paid in full. Jesus said, I died for you. I conquered death. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid anymore. What did John do to deserve that? Answer, nothing. I love what the theologian said. What did I do to contribute to my own salvation? I sinned. That's all. John knows in this very instance that all that he really deserves is death and hell. So he does it. You'll notice here, John doesn't try to negotiate. Christ, be careful. I I tried to do some good work. I don't know if you heard. I wrote a couple books. He doesn't do that here, does he? In light of Christ, he simply falls on his face in humility and worship and in confession Listen, if you think, because we're all going to have a moment where we stand before Christ, if you think that you're somehow going to impress Jesus with all your good deeds, you are sadly mistaken. Believe me, when you enter in the presence of the glorified Christ, 
you will know that he's holy and you're a sinner. John simply falls in confession and faith and Christ forgives because forgiveness is not something that's earned. It's bestowed as a free gift of grace. Now here's the question as we close. Why does John receive this vision? Two reasons, very briefly. One is so that John and these churches would know that the Lord's hand is upon them. So that John and these churches would know that the Lord's hand is upon them. Christ is the Lord. He's the great high priest. He's pure. He's holy. He's completely set apart. He's all wise. He's all knowing. No one is hidden from him. No one can conquer him. No one can overwhelm him. He is all powerful. His word is powerful. His word is effective. His word lays bare our lives before him. His glory is so great that it overwhelms us and exposes our sin. And yet as we fall at his feet in worship, he lays his hand of grace and mercy upon us. See, this is the primary reason why I think John receives this vision is to let John know in his suffering, to let the church know in their suffering that I am God and I'm more glorious than you can possibly imagine and yet I love you and I'm with you. If you're here this morning, I don't care what you're going through. If you know Jesus Christ, know this today beyond a shadow of a doubt. His hand of mercy and grace extends to you even today right now. That as you fall at your feet in worship, he is able to reach out his hand and touch even you. To be reminded that you're not alone. He's not distant. He's not unaware. He's with you. That the Lord who crushes the nations holds you in his loving nail-pierced hands. Secondly, I believe this vision gives us a glimpse and a taste of what is possible when we gather in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is possible. This is my prayer week in and week out. This is why we come to church. Because we want to see Jesus. And there's something special about this day and coming together corporately as God's people and through the proclamation of his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we get a glimpse of Christ. We have a supernatural divine encounter with God in his holy word. And what does it do? When we get a chance to see Jesus, what does it do? As we enter into his presence, number one, it shows us that we're all sinners, amen. We gather in this place week in and week out to worship and we are always reminded every one of us, that this is just one big hospital and there's only one physician and his name is Jesus. We're just all patients. Sinners who are broken. And you know what Christ is in the business of doing? Revealing our sin, breaking us down so that he can build us back up by his grace and his mercy into who he wants us to be. That's why this is my prayer week in and week out is that as you come here, whether you know Christ or not, that you would see Jesus. That if you don't know Christ, he'd be revealed in his word and your sin would be exposed. You'd be convicted for who you are and that's a sinner. And yet you would also see his grace and his love on the cross and that he would reach out his hand and you would know his mercy and you'd know his forgiveness and you'd know his freedom and you would be reborn through faith in Jesus Christ. Not of any work of your own, but simply by trusting in Christ. 
And that for all of us, even if we know Christ, that as we gather, we have a supernatural encounter with Christ. And every week when we come, we, can't, we never leave the same. Because we met Christ in his word. That's what we come for. I know, I know coming to LBC, it's not always easy. I tell people all the time, you gotta want to come to church here. I mean, you I was talking to a lady last night. She's like, I I found out you gotta take a shuttle every week. I she just started coming on Saturday nights. She said, I ain't taking no shuttle. Well, God bless her. She's coming on Saturday. But it's not always easy to find a parking spot. It's not always easy to find a seat. Sometimes it can be a little chaotic getting kids checked in. And I know that it's not always easy to get a family up and going. But my prayer is that when you get here, it'd be worth it. Not because of a song you heard or a preacher you saw or a program you participated in, but because when you got here, you encountered Christ together with his people and his word and you left changed. See, the beauty of Christ is when you don't know him, listen to me, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. The thought of encountering Christ when you don't know him, it should scare you. But when you come to him and you humble yourself and you confess your sin and you experience his grace and his love, guess what? When you know Christ, do you know what you really want as a believer? You just want to see Jesus, don't you? I mean, that, that, that's the story of our lives as believers. We just want to be with Jesus. I tell you, that's my prayer every day. I know of believers that go to be with the Lord, and to some extent, I'm jealous. I mean, I think of Harriet Graves. She's with Jesus, amen, Newton. She's with Jesus today. I called Newton on the day she passed away. I said, I'm so sorry. He said, why in the world are you sorry? She's not suffering anymore. She's with Jesus. There's so many days when I just want to sit and talk with Jesus. I mean, we hear his voice through his word, but we see through a glass dimly, don't we? It's by means of we walk by faith and not by sight. But I don't know about you. I want to see. That's what I long for. If you don't long for that, something's wrong. He's my savior. He's my everything. So do we have a song? Yeah, we do. Not long ago at a funeral service, I heard this song and it's been stuck in my head. It says, I dreamed of a city called glory. It was so bright and so fair. And as I entered that gate, I cried, holy. Oh, the angels all met me there. And they carried me from mansion to mansion. And oh, what a sight I saw. But I said, I want to see Jesus. Because he's the one who died for us all. When I entered the gates of the city, my loved ones all knew me well. They took me down the streets of heaven. All the saints were too many to tell. I saw Abraham Jacob and Isaac. I talked with Mark and I sat down with Timothy. But then I said, I want to see Jesus. 
He's the one who died for me. And I bowed on my knees and I cried, holy, holy, holy. I clapped my hands and sang glory, 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 glory to the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this vision of Christ. Lord, I pray right now for anybody that doesn't know you. Oh, Lord, I pray that just as you did for those of us who do know you supernaturally by the power of your spirit and the proclamation of your word. God, I pray somehow today that you supernaturally peeled back the blinders from their eyes. As the word of God says, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glorious face of Christ. God, peel back those blinders today. Let them see Jesus. Humble them. Break them. And I pray, Lord, that they would look to you and they would see the love that you demonstrated on the cross and they would run to you and you would reach out your hand and you would touch them. Your nail-pierced hands that demonstrate your love that, Lord, you would wrap them around that lost believer and they would know your forgiveness and your grace and your redemption. Lord, today that they would be reborn through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray today we've caught a glimpse of Christ. I pray that you would continue to refine our lives to expose the sin. Lord, we want to be holy. We want to be more effective for you. Expose our sin. Round off the rough edges. Lord, don't give up on us. Make us moldable, teachable. Humble us. Break us down so that you might build us back up into who you'd have us to be. Thank you for your touch of grace and mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.